Oh, hello there. I'm just enjoying this nice warm fire, which is definitely a very real fire and not something I found in a sound effects library. It's that feeling of genuine warmth and jolliness that can either be a blessing or a burden at Christmas time. But that wasn't always the case. Christmas used to be about creating an atmosphere of abject terror. I spoke with a real British person, reverse shot critic Julian Allen, about the tradition of telling and reading ghost stories at Christmas. Let's start at the beginning. Where did the tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas begin? Well, in terms of where, it's, it's thought to be Northern Europe. Of course, the key thing is it's hard to tell when. I think one thing we do know for sure is that it predates what we now know as Christmas. It's an ancient tradition that is more connected with the winter solstice. Now, um, cynics might say that Christ's birthday was selected to coincide with the winter <laughs> solstice. I couldn't possibly comment about that. But I think there are two distinct um, traditions which I think come together quite nicely. The first is the, the tradition of a winter's tale, which is a mid midwinter idea of telling stories around the fire on the longest, coldest, darkest night of the year. And the other one is the festival which sort of gave birth um, to Christmas, the pagan Norse festival of Yule, familiar to anyone who enjoys Christmas puns. So Yule, I think a lot of people are aware of it, but it was a, a festival of death and rebirth and there were animal sacrifices and people present at the festival were smeared with blood um so if you like without wishing to uh, <laughs> coin a slasher film title it was a festival of blood if you think about those two things it's it's, it's hard to relinquish even within uh, the concept of peace and goodwill to all men it's hard to relinquish ancient centuries old traditions like that if you imagine a sort of rural english family uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, huddled together around a fire. Maybe they could afford a candle or two. The atmospheric conditions were just about perfect for telling stories. They had uh, a lot of time to kill. Right. Uh, there wasn't anything they could do in the fields. So we are trying to cling on to that tradition today. But of course, uh, plenty of other traditions have come along uh, to take its place. Right. Well, you're talking about very, very long ago. But there was sort of, let's say, a crisis of Christmas at a certain point. And the way that we traditionally think of celebrating Christmas is very much a Victorian idea of, you know, sending cards, mm. all the particular types of decorations and having a tree and stuff like that is very much rooted in the Victorian era. And sort of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol did for the holiday was sort of really important culturally. And we sort of haven't recovered from it. But that's also essentially a type of a ghost story as well, right? Yeah, it is, of course. I mean, Dickens' Christmas Carol, I think, is probably the most globally popular ghost story at Christmas. And um, Dickens, in common with other great English writers, such as William Shakespeare and um, Oscar Wilde, used ghosts as a vehicle to set up more profound sort of thoughts and ideas and social comment in Dickens' case. So the ghostly aspects were certainly in keeping with the Christmas tradition. Uh, Shakespeare, as we know, loved ghost stories. He did his own Winter's Tale, mm -hmm. uh, although it's not a ghost story. The statue, the apparition at the end of Herm Hermione is definitely a, a ghostly twist, mm -hmm. um, the idea of a, somebody pronounced dead coming back to life. And, and indeed, Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, uh, another brilliant piece of uh, satirical writing, but using this, what we sort of recognize as ghostly techniques. My view is, is that those great writers you know, couldn't ignore the power of a ghost story, mm. but I, I don't think you would call them ghost stories in the purest sense. I think if, if you're really looking at fear as the principal yes. purpose, <laughs> then you're looking at slightly more 
specialist ghost story writers such as M.R. James, for example. Yes, and M.R. James is, I think, very dear to fans of horror stories. I'd, could you talk a little bit about who M.R. James was and characterized the types of stories that he would write? I mean, like a lot of good writers, he wasn't really a writer. Yeah. I mean, he was a historian uh, and a teacher. His field of study was medievalism. He started, I think, as a storyteller. I mean, he was entertaining his friends and, and pupils at Cambridge and, and Eton School, sort of in his late 40s, um, as a hobby, really. And he would write these short stories in order to entertain his friend. You know, if, if he'd been alive today, he might have been a blogger, <laughs> the sort of person that would send little pieces of writing to his friends and ask them to give him great feedback yeah. on it. But in his day, he would gather them together at Christmas in the way and, and he'd terrify them so that's who he was i mean he became unfortunately well not for, fortunately i suppose famous for, for that more than for his medievalism which was as far as i understand fairly fairly uh, first rate but what i think he did in terms of the ghost story was he brought horror back home and he took it away from the idea of sort of romantic or gothic traditions of needing to go all the way to transylvania or some uh, you know, dark castle with uh, in a storm. In an M.R. James story, the horror is happening to some poor chap who's gone for a walk down a coastline, um, you know, uh, on a June afternoon. Yes. And it's very, <laughs> the settings are very mundane. Mm -hmm. And what's brilliant about it is he pits the unexplained and the supernatural against the mundane and the hyper-rational. Yeah. So you have these professional characters, usually a a clerk or an actuary or a scholar wandering around in some remote location on some sort of information gathering exercise and bit by bit unsettling things start to occur until it culminates in something unspeakable. Yes, and I think there's even a part of uh, a view from a hill where M.R. James writes, you know, it is so hard for me at this very cold time of year to describe what it's what England is like during June. And yet here I go. And it's always these exquisite contrasts of like the natural world and rationality and horror. But all these things that aren't necessarily you don't realize they're extremes until they start confronting you. Sure. So sure. I mean, he knew his audience. He, he, he was telling, telling stories to, to well-educated people. Mm -hmm. Um, and he wanted them to feel that this basically could happen to them. And they were people who didn't believe in spirits or ghostly apparitions, but they were interested in the medieval and the antiquarian. So uh, he, he was very clever in that sense. He, he wrote things that, that some of his, you know, his pupils sitting around uh, listening, and some of them would become the kind of characters that would end up in these situations. And as you say, Violet, his, his descriptions of, of, of you know, whatever, whether it's the shoreline or the particular remote location of some old abbey or some dusty library even. He, he was so meticulous and so brilliant. The, the stories are, are great to read even before anything's actually oh, happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're, it's a very pleasurable experience. And then as things start to happen, you're pitting the two things against each other. So it, it, the contrast between something very ultimately quite sort of pleasant and un, unthreatening and the unexplained is stronger and, and, and really extremely powerful. The BBC had this series in the early 70s called The Ghost Story for Christmas. Every year they would adapt a different M.R. James story and there was also Dickens story called The Signalman that was with, with Denham Elliott, which was like was really great. But before all of that, there was a show mm. uh, that you've written about before called Omnibus, which was actually like a documentary series. And they did an adaptation 
of uh, whistle and I'll come to you, lad. Could, so could you talk about that and sort of like the strategy for adapting that? Because uh, the, uh, the film version, I'll whistle and I'll come to you, is absolutely terrifying, but so simple and it just completely sneaks up on you. Well, again, I think it's, um, if you take James's idea that the most terrifying thing is always going to be when somebody who cannot possibly believe in the supernatural is suddenly confronted mm-hmm. with it without, without any doubt um, and obviously loses his mind. Then the point about the adaptation you're talking about by Jonathan mm-hmm. Miller, who, like M.R. James, was a bit of a polymath himself. And what he did, whether it was by accident or by design, he rather stripped the entire project right down. He used, this, I think, the same documentary mm-hmm. crew had, who had done the other four or five episodes of Omnibus. Mm-hmm. And, and if you like, there was no real sense of foreboding in any of the camera work. Mm-hmm. There was no uh, music used yeah. d- during, the, during the film. And frankly, the first sort of 20 minutes of the film are <laughs> rather uneventful. They're very funny, though. They set the scene beautifully. <laughs> They're very funny. And, and Michael Horden, a great Shakespearean actor, is very funny. He's a stuffy little academic um, who, who's gone on holiday in some godforsaken part of the east of England. And he, he sees this apparition. And, of course, he thinks it's... Um, he just thinks it's somebody who's come to pester him and he sort of runs away just because he doesn't want to talk to him. And of course, we are left in no doubt that there's something a little bit more to it, but he himself is not really frightened at that point. The film, uh, I think, is so influential because of the fact that it stripped it so far down and held back so much of the, of the horror until the end. Michael Horton's character he finds a whistle on the beach and it has a Latin text on it. And, and, and he... Um, shall we say, speaks the Latin text out loud and blows on the whistle and then, and then what happens is absolutely horrific. <laughs> um, and, and I won't spoil it, but I mean, it, it, it's really only at the end that the full impact of it comes through. And again, it's, it's taking that Jamesian contrast between the, the mundanity of, what, of the life of the characters he's presenting and, and the, just the sheer 100% fear that is, that is being deployed <laughs> right at the end it's so, so unsettling. And there have been a lot of adaptations since that have tried, but I'm not sure they've actually succeeded in, in, in recapturing that almost radical, pared-down approach. Mm. Well, could you talk about some of those? Because the the BBC revived the series recently, or in recent years they revived, doing scary stories for Christmas. Yeah. I mean, as you say, there's always been an attempt to, to, to try and keep that tradition alive, and, and BBC television's been at the forefront of that. And well, I mean, it's coming straight on the heels of Whistle I'll Come to You was a warning to the curious, which is actually a, I think people think that a warning to the curious is one of James's best, best stories. Um, I think it gets wrong what a, a lot of things that Whistle I'll Come to You got right. It's in colour, but that's fair enough. It has music and it is perhaps a little demonstrative a little bit earlier. So I, I think it just loses a little bit of that. It does star the very lamented Peter Vaughan, who actually passed away the last week or so, a great English actor, it's very sad. So it's, it's good to see from that perspective. But actually, more recently, as you said, they've remade a number of these, and in particular, they've remade Whistle I'll Come to You, and they've remade the Tractate, oh no, they've made an adaptation of the Tractate Mid-Earth, that, that was about 2013. Those two are extremely slick, well-financed productions, which undoubtedly have quite a lot of artistry, but they are, if you like, they are victims of what is considered to be the requirements of modern audiences. 
In other words, they have to go a bit further. And they had to add an extra layer of horror to Whistle I'll Come to You, which in itself was quite frightening. It reminded me a little bit of Ringu, but um, uh, involving Gemma Jones instead of the Japanese girl with the, with the bad hair. But that sort of addition, that need that, to, to add to what, the, to what was perfectly good material before, for fans, I suspect, might have left them wanting a bit. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about a warning to the curious, sort of the scenario of the original story versus what the film version does, let's say? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the adaptation isn't, isn't far wrong. Uh, it's the three crowns are buried in a forest, again, sort of on the east coast again, near, near where uh, Whistle I'll Come to You occurs. Uh, two crowns have already been unsettled, and it's, uh, mythology says that if the third crown is tampered with or, or some sort of curse or rune is going to be, uh, is going to be cast uh, on, on whoever it was that did it. And um, I think Peter Vaughan plays a clerk, and um, he, he goes down and obviously disturbs it, and is pursued by a rather horrific character. Oh, a consumptive um, ghost. Exactly right. The descriptions, it's, it's easy to forget when you watch all these adaptations that the, the way uh, James described apparitions was actually quite disarming. He, 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 we talked about how meticulous he was in the detail and how, and how fond of detail he was. When he starts to describe the monster, and this is something television simply can't, can't recreate, he uses great descriptions, but they're ambiguous. Right. So you sort of get a feeling for what he's describing, but he never quite lets you grasp exactly what he's describing. I mean, I can give you, I can read a tiny little extract um, to give you an example and, and see if you agree. This is from uh, Canon Albrecht's uh, scrapbook, one of the early stories. And the ca main character has seen that there's somebody in his bedroom, somebody with a wizened hand uh, lying on his um, bed bedside table. The extract starts, he flew out of his chair with deadly, inconceivable terror clutching at his heart. The shape, whose left hand rested on the table, was rising to a standing posture behind his seat, its right hand crooked above his scalp. There was black and tattered drapery about it. The coarse hair covered it as in the drawing. The lower jaw was thin. What can I call it? Shallow like a beast's. Teeth showed behind the black lips. There was no nose. The eyes of a fiery yellow against which the pupils showed black and intense and the exulting hate and thirst to destroy life which shone there were the most horrifying features in the whole vision. There was intelligence of a kind in them, intelligence beyond that of a beast, below that of a man. Now, I mean, that extract is great fun to read. And, yes. Uh, but <laughs> are you any the clearer about what it is that he's seeing? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, as an ad if you're ad adapting M.R. James for the screen, how on earth would you, right. do, would you do that? It's very, very difficult. And I think the warning to the curious, modern audiences might look at that and uh, the way they did it uh, there and say uh, that the idea is scary, but the actual, if you like, the effect that's being given is not. And again, it comes back to the old thing, always better to show as little as possible. And I think that's actually something that Whistle and I'll come to you, not to spoil anything, but when the supernatural stuff does start showing up, the way they do that yeah. effect is so creepy because it is it is it's like this negative space and you can project really whatever you want onto it but it's also very realistic how they achieve it or even the figure that appears on the beach it's just standing in such an unnatural way that it's like is that a dummy is that a person 
it's great. But it, exactly, <laughs> I can stop. Exactly, you, you're left. You're, you're left to to wonder all of these yeah. things. You're not. You're not. You're, yeah, that's right. You, you're just like all great horror. You know, you, it's left the horrors in your head. I mean, there is a, actually an unfortunate contrast, isn't there, with the um, what is otherwise a very interesting and you know, rather rather good film, Night of the Demon, yes. which was actually I think I think probably the first ever. Um, a, a film adaptation of M.R. James, which is from uh, Val Luton and Jack yeah. Turner. The, the only problem with that, as I'm sure you know, is this, this studio interference mm-hmm. insisted on a on the demon uh, being sort of front and centre. Right, right. <laughs> and well, it's a bit of a shame, yeah. really. Shall we say the, the film is very Jamesian, but unfortunately the demon is not. And it's actually quite funny. People think the shark in Jaws is funny. I find the shark terrifying, but I find the demon in Night of the Demon absolutely hilarious. Oh, yeah. No, and I mean the framing device of like this like cranky American private supernatural detective who's sent overseas to debunk. It's also that's also a little strange, but... Yeah, it is. It's not for everyone, but I think if people who are familiar with those with those films would would have enjoyed that, but but might have actually balked at at the the idea of of being quite so explicit with the oh, monster. No, totally. Obviously, more recently, I think the BBC have taken to having people sitting in the chair and reading the stories, and and you can sort of see why sometimes because it is so hard to get it exactly right as Jonathan Miller did with uh, Whistle I'll Come to You. Many have tried, and um, sometimes Christopher Lee sitting in a chair and reading M.R. James, it may be cheaper as well, but it's also very atmospheric. Also, Christopher Lee actually met M.R. James, which is kind of amazing. I do. That's that's true, isn't it? And and I also noticed that M.R. James and Dickens overlapped by about four or five years. (laughs) So I'm not sure they met, but um, there's a kind of passing of the baton there. Are there any other horror writers of that Christmas ghost story that are notable or you feel should be? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a good question. I, I, M.R. James does almost have a bit of monopoly on the Christmas <laughs> aspect. Um, but it is worth pointing out, of course, that, of course, the Americans do have a fairly strong tradition of their own with, you know, likes of um, Lovecraft and Stephen King, and but all of them James uh, you know, supporters and, and fans and James was so influential it, you know the one of the best things about him is that he, there was a paradox in what he did which is that he was saying that knowledge and curiosity which were the kind of hallmarks of his own profession as a historian are dangerous and ill-advised in it's other an words evidence of man's hubris there <laughs> was desire to know he's a historian but yeah. he's saying if you find an artifact, a book or a painting of interest or, uh, or a building of interest, walk away. <laughs> you know, don't try and better yourself. Don't try and, uh, and, and don't be inquisitive. Right. Walk away and you'll live, be a dullard and you will live a happy okay. life. But if you find a whistle on a beach and blow into it, then it's not going to end well right. for you. So, you know, those things, the, the cursed book, uh, Sam Raimi is the one that comes oh, to yes. mind, isn't it? He, the Necronomicon in Evil Dead and, of course, Drag Me to Hell is... It sort of has a few nods to M.R. James as well. Thank you so much for uh, participating. I've really enjoyed it. As Julian alluded to, this tradition of spookiness at Christmas continues, and there are some truly great horror films set on or around Jesus' birthday. I was joined by Michael Koreski, Margaret Barton Fumo, and Ina Archer to discuss some cold-weather classics of the genre. 
Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by Margaret Barton Fumo, contributor to Film Comment. Michael Kresge, editorial director of Film Society of Lincoln Center. Ina Archer, um, media artist and contributor to Film Comment. Thank you all for coming today on this spooky morning, <laughs> spooky December morning. It's, uh, as one of our fellow, my fellow editors, Laura Kern, has said, what's scarier than spending time with your family? So this episode of the Film Comedy Podcast, or this part of the podcast, is going to discuss um, just scary horror movies that are set during Christmas, or just during the winter, and uh, just dealing with the horror of frost and freezing, and um, also spending time with your family. So um, I've asked everyone to bring a couple of movies with them that they would like to discuss. And um, I know yours was sort of, we were talking before we started recording. I, I watched this just for this podcast for the first time and it, it was so upsetting. <laughs> I think it's, uh, we really can't talk about scary Christmas movies without talking about Black Christmas. So please. Okay. <laughs> I know it's, uh, it's kind of the, the beginning of a slasher, I think an early slasher style movie and it has all of those tropes the 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 killer that might be within the house the um, phone calls that come in to terrorize or at least upset the young women who are and it takes place during Christmas it starts out from the point of view of the the killer and sort of switches back and forth and I think what's really striking about it is that it still manages to be extremely upsetting. And, and when I was thinking about you know, choosing the movies for the podcast, I was really excited about it. And after watching this film, because it's so relentless, mm -hmm. that I was really kind of down. It has a sort of sad feeling that comes through it, I think because of the fact that there's a father who's looking for his daughter, who's one of the first victims of this distraught entity that's in the house. It kind of reminds me of the entity in the in the sense that mm -hmm. it's very unpleasant. The the humor that comes around in the film that usually relieves you in a horror film is not really there. Yeah, there's a young woman that get is goes missing in the film that's being searched for as well throughout the movie. So yeah. there's no there's none of that. You know, every, everyone's a little crazy. Kier Delia's in it. He's mm -hmm. kind of a modern music player, but he might also he's suspect. And there was something about it being uh, set in a college town that really struck me as being sort of class-based, which I hadn't noticed until I watched it again, where the school, the, the girls in, in the, on the campus are sort of separated from the, the people in the town. Mm -hmm. And is it Deborah Winger who's the... Um, <laughs> Which one? The main? The main? Yeah, the, it's Olivia Hussey. Oh no, I, Romeo I mean, and Juliet. Yeah, um, the oh, oh, you mean Margot Kidder? Mar Margot Kidder. Kidder. Excuse me. How about I, so? Excuse me, Deborah Winger and Margot Kidder. <laughs> um, that she, you know, early on is talking when they, they're getting these these horrifying phone calls that are not just prank calls, but like insane, yeah, mixture of sounds and baby talk and mm -hmm. that are terrifying. Uh, even when you don't use a regular phone anymore, or old-fashioned old-fashioned phone. <laughs> but she, at one point, talks about a young woman who's been raped in the town, and she's like, "Oh, you know, townies can't get raped." Right. And it just that line and all it, it really made a separation that the the people who are searching for the, the the search party is presented as this kind of goofy group of people. Mm -hmm. It seemed something about that was also very odd and, and, and off-putting, I guess, but also yeah. really interesting. 
I mean, for me, it, what what was so striking for me is just like, like as a woman, just what a terrifying scenario this is because these women in this house, they have a house mother who's just a drunk and it's supposed to be comic relief, but it's like also incredibly grotesque how <laughs> much she's drinking. Yeah, just that the police are sort of like, there's one police officer that's completely inept and everyone's like, oh, geez, you <laughs> idiot. But then even the competent police fail. And it's terrifying because it's like in the end, it's just like sometimes women are just really on their own and so much is left unresolved. And then there's this final shot and I won't give anything away. But the first victim that you described, you see that she's right in the window and she's been there the entire movie. And no one, first of all, no one thought to look in the attic. And she's like right there. It's incredibly um, it's so, and the phone is ringing. Image. And the phone is ringing and ringing and ringing, and it's the killer calling again. She's wrapped in plastic, and she's in a rocking chair. Yes. So she's constantly moving back and forth, basically from the first scene to the last scene of the yes. movie. It's 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 quite an image. Yes. Um, and there's no real reveal of the killer ever. No. There's no like catharsis. There's no like pulling back of the curtain and seeing his face, or even knowing why he's just like this weird gibbering gibberish that he does, like hysterical, and it's like. Well, this person is clearly unwell from maybe a childhood thing, but you have no idea where he came from, why he is doing this. He's just mad at these women who are kind of awesome because they just don't give a fuck. Like, that's the other thing the movie shows is just like, they're always just being like, whatever, fuck this, fuck that. They're drinking all the time. And then they're just horribly punished. And it's like, like what really got me is like, that's such a perfect encapsulation of like serial killers of that time. Or, you know, like people like Jeffrey Dahmer who are like, well, I hate women because they're free and they can not, they can turn me down. And like that, that's sort of the big tension between Olivia Hussey and her boyfriend who, uh, the conservatory guy, because she's gotten pregnant and she doesn't want to keep it. And he does. And that's sort of what leads the police to be like, oh, well that sent him into this rage. And that's why he's a potential suspect. But I'd love to ask the question that I think is sort of central to this is what makes this a Christmas movie. I, I rewatched Black Christmas again this weekend too. I love the movie. Mm -hmm. um, we, we also have to make note that it's directed by Bob Clark. Yes. Who directed A Christmas Story, um, <laughs> fascinatingly, a decade later. And they're both kind of similarly atmospheric films, actually. Mm -hmm. Beautiful production design in both. Similar establishing shots of, of the house from outside, I really feel, like the snowy house at Christmas time. But I can't really quite figure out what makes Black Christmas Christmassy besides the opportunity to use these amazing lights, these, this production design. It's kind of an interesting question. It's, it sort of takes, it takes Christmas as, as, a, as an idea and as a look. And as a feel. It's a plot device, too, because the first girl who's murdered is about to leave out of town to see her right. family. And so then when she's murdered at first, people think she's just disappeared. Right. I think for me, the the pervasive sense of like loneliness that it is throughout the film, I think that's sort of what makes it a Christmas or a commentary on Christmas, because it's like you can be totally alone at Christmas and and feeling that agony and just the fact that a lot of the other girls leave the house and they're sort of safe because they've gone to be with their families early that contrast of like what is that warmth of being surrounded by people and one of the final shots is panning around the rooms and seeing they're empty and seeing a case packed that no one is going to take because that person is dead <laughs> And, and completely like, silent. Oh. I, I, I'm always so struck by the lack of music yes. in those scenes. There isn't much in the film generally, but especially in those last scenes where the camera's just panning around this mostly empty house. It's mm. very eerie. 
but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's about loneliness. I think that's what probably all these movies sort of get at, right? Yeah. That this time is supposed to be this full, familial, warm time, and it isn't for most people. So it really, yeah. it really strikes a chord. And it's dark in the winter, and you have to be inside. And yes, <laughs> Michael, what was one of yours? It's really hard to decide <laughs> which to talk about first. Also, because there are so many grim, dark. Christmas films that aren't necessarily horror, but they have horror elements. Yeah. I mean, um, I know this was spoken of earlier in the first part of this podcast, mm -hmm. but there's been a long tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time, mm -hmm. and it makes a lot of sense. You huddle together by a candle. You want to be, you know, you want to kind of like be a buffer against the darkness. Tomorrow is the solstice, which is the shortest day of the year and the longest yes. night of the year, which yep. I think is befitting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so going through all these lists of, of Christmas movies trying to decide, I realized that they were all about death, all of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, even The Happy Ones, It's a Wonderful Life, is about death. Yes. And this amazing Canadian film, Mon Oncle Antoine, I don't know if anybody's seen, which is in Criterion Collection, which is about a young boy coming of age and learning about mortality in this very desolate, wintry landscape in Canada, mm -hmm. in Quebec. It's incredible. <laughs> it's really, really depressing. <laughs> His uncle is a, an undertaker, and he has to travel with him across the snowy landscape to, to bury this child who's his own age and looks oh. just like him. Great. Ah. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, but actually, the first one I'll talk about is an, a rather obvious one, but, but probably worth talking about, which is A Christmas Carol. There have been many versions of A Christmas Carol over the years. Before we did this, I know you were talking about the 1951 with Alastair Sim being the best. And most people the agree only with you. One. And the only. <laughs> and most people agree with you. However, I'm going to put my uh, all of my chips on the 1983 George C. Scott version. Mm. One, because I adore George C. Scott. He is a miracle, or he was a miracle. <laughs> and one of the greatest actors that ever lived. But also, um, I think this is the scariest one. Have you seen the 1983 version? No, because I only watch Alistair Sim. <laughs> People are very particular about which Christmas Carol is the one they watch. Um, and I understand that. I admire that. Uh, I think I've seen most of the major versions. I do love that story. But the George C. Scott 1983, made for television, is absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying in the sense of isolation, in the sense of this man um, refusing to acknowledge his, his own mortality, his 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 amorality. Obviously, that's a central theme of these stories. But usually, in the other version, Scrooge starts to kind of melt a little bit early on. George C. Scott stays pissed off, angry, and immobile to the end until he sees his name carved on his own gravestone. He is not budging, mm -hmm. and and that kind of forces the spirits to be meaner. This is in the, in this version, the Ghost of Christmas Past is super sarcastic. The Ghost of Christmas Present is mean asshole i mean you know he's usually portrayed as a jolly green giant not in this version he takes him to task every they even they get this added dialogue that makes him more of a, a nasty taskmaster and then this the scene where the ghost of christmas present reveals ignorance and want the kind of the, the, the children beneath his robe nightmare is my entire childhood <laughs> absolute nightmares and the ghost of christmas future of course everyone knows is the grim reaper but in this version it's the most inhuman that I that I've seen the way that he's robed. The, I, I believe the hands aren't actually human hands. They're these kind of like skeleton props <laughs> that kind of stick out and just point. And it, of course, as opposed to speaks. every other '80s movie, which used real skeletons and cursed everyone involved in the production. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, so I'm, I just, it's one of those movies that you watch for the catharsis, but the reason I keep going back to that one is because I actually like being scared by it. I find it to be a truly terrifying experience. And like that glimmer of hope in the last 10 minutes where Scrooge sees the error of his ways is not enough to banish all the <laughs> nasty mean thoughts of it. So um, I highly recommend it. Also, David Warner, who was Jack the Ripper in Time After Time. I love that actor. Always plays a villain. He plays the sweetest Bob Cratchit ever. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Cast I against might type. have to, yes, add that to my list. <laughs> Margaret, what about you? Well... I thought we could talk about Christmas Evil, which I of think course. we also mentioned in the last podcast, which I think is a fantastic film. Very creepy, a little bit taboo, and just hinges entirely on the performance of the main actor, who is, happens to be Fiona Apple's dad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was originally titled uh, You Better Watch Out, and it's about a guy who was traumatized somehow just by seeing his his parents you know hooking up on christmas with the dad dressed up as a santa claus it's really not no big deal i don't think but <laughs> it traumatized him so much that he he cut himself as a child and then it just sort of twisted him although he's still obsessed with christmas and absolutely loves christmas there's something severely off about this man and um i see it as like abject horror not in the academic way that people talk about abject horror but just in the sense that he this is a man who's just been cast off by society no one cares about him uh everyone around him just sort of ridicules him and treats him terribly and so he finds solace in judging harshly judging children (laughs) (laughs) and he spies on the children in his neighborhood and he keeps tabs on who's been naughty and who's been nice in these ledgers And the whole year he just prepares to dress up as Santa Claus and and give gifts to the good kids and give coal to the bad ones. But he's he's a Christmas moralist, really. But I think there is also even a hint in the film that if you don't raise your kids right, they'll turn out bad. Kind of hinting at that all the other people in in the film who are just awful may may be they weren't raised right. (laughs) For instance, there's this kid, Moss Garcia, who's like, Harry is the main character. He's like Harry's foil. He's just this little shithead of a kid who loves Penthouse magazine and just sort of like beats up on all the other kids. But there's a moment in the film where we see that he's actually being raised by a single mom who doesn't really have the time to care for him enough or discipline him enough. Who wrote that, Dan Quayle? That's so rude. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, it's all about the performance, though, of of this actor, Fiona Apple's dad, whose name I forget, which is just amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's very emphatic. There are a lot of scenes where he just sort of breaks down in front of the mirror, where he's looking at himself in the mirror, and he's like either singing Christmas carols or he's just like sort of breaking down and crying and... Over the fateful Christmas night when he's dressed up as Santa wreaking havoc and everything goes horribly wrong. <laughs> Over the course of the night, like his his Santa costume just gets dirtier and filthier and his face gets kind of balmy and sweaty. The little bit of his face that you can see underneath the hat and the beard. And he just physically kind of loses it. And it's a performance for the ages. <laughs> It reminded me a little of uh, Taxi Driver, in a way, for his preparation for his mm-hmm. big Christmas night, which mm-hmm. I thought was going to be more directed at children, but is actually 
goes after the adults that are mm-hmm. really think that he's just kind of a schmuck. Mm-hmm. And he also works in a toy factory. Mm-hmm. So he's constantly trying to advocate for the quality of the toys, which is not really happening. And, <laughs> and so this kind of helps to drive his transformation into Santa Claus. But also the setting is very odd and interesting. It's um, in, in New Jersey and that it's so um, sort of low rent feeling. Oh, I found that really spooky. And I guess that's also sort of the taxi driver or the kind of idea that it's very kind of under, even when in the, in the home, in the, in like his brother's home, it doesn't feel very festive. It feels almost documentary like in a way. And it kind of reminded me of that movie Martin is made by Uh, George Romero that has this um, atmosphere that's very um, sort of middle or lower middle class kind of what Christmas looks like outside of the kind of dressed up, dolled up excitement of being in New York City or something like that, that it feels very much like being in, you know, sort of a suburb um, and how that loneliness is shown by being in this kind of lonely atmosphere that seems away from where all the excitement is. And he also drives around in this in this creepy like white van that he painted a sleigh on. Yeah. You want to talk about like low rent really. Yeah. It's very <laughs> unsettling. Yeah. I'm not sure which one to of mine I should talk about first. Um uh I feel like when I was preparing for this, I started I watched Black Christmas, got super upset, got super freaked out. Tried watching Silent Night, Deadly Night. Couldn't get past like the first 20 minutes because I was like, oh my God, this is probably how normal normal people feel when they watch horror movies. Like just totally <laughs> upset by this <laughs> gratuitous violence. And so normal people, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is not a fun experience for you. Um, but uh, another movie that has a similar title but is very different is Silent Night, Bloody Night, which is from 1972. And it is just really a super independent film like it's like in every sense of that meaning where it's just like it's very there are parts that are super clumsy and hard like just barely registering and then there's just these really a quarter of a cup or just like a dash of Douglas Cirque where someone will be shot so picturesquely through like um these uh you know like a banister you know across a banister or something but basically the story is that this guy is trying to sell his house that his grandfather's house that he's inherited and he's been living in California. And he and at first he sends his lawyer to manage with the town and be like, you know, $50,000 in cash for this house. And it's a grand mansion with, you know, all sorts of like <laughs> cherubs and just just tacky rich people stuff. And the leadership of the town are feel a little sh- shook down by this offer. But they're also like, we have to we have to do this. We have to get rid of this house. And so they they accept the offer and the lawyer decides to spend the night there instead of at the Paradise Motel. And the lawyer has this cute little European chick with him who she pronounces things like baloney. And she thinks that it's real, uh, you know, she gets this real cheap wine from like the deli, delicatessen that's across the street. And they're eating this very chintzy meal in this grand home. And then... uh, they get chopped up with an axe. <laughs> and from there, the the, product, the the grandson comes back and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And the plot twists at the end are just totally absurd. And like, if you don't, if you're not paying attention, you will miss them. They go by so fast. It's just literally one sentence. Oh yeah, everyone, all the town's leadership are escaped mental patients from the asylum that this house used to be. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> what happened? 
Did you just spoil Silent Night, Bloody Night? I might have. I've seen it tonight. I don't know. <laughs> but again, what's interesting is that it is sort of like, it uses certain things that are in Black Christmas, but a little bit clumsier, like the phone calls and like the killer POV. Even the killer POV is like sometimes it works and sometimes it's just like, okay, there's like you put heavy breathing over a handheld camera. That's not very good. And then other times there's like a little bit of like Russian montage where an action is weirdly repeated, like <laughs> chopping up a dog for no reason. Um, and then also a uh, candy darling factory denizen is in uh, this really great sequence towards the end where you see the degenerate doctors that used to run the asylum. So it's more of um, it's not necess- it's uh, it's not super it's not super scary, but it's just I think a sort of an interesting like mishmash of different filmmaking techniques. And again, it's just like oh yeah, that's what independent films used to look like, and not these slick sort of similar things that just come down the pipeline. But um, Maybe we could turn it now towards, Michael, as you said, just films that are sort of set during wintertime that are maybe not specifically horror, but have creepy elements. And I know you had mentioned Eyes Wide Shut, which is... Uh, yes. <clears throat> it would feel weird not to talk about Eyes Wide Shut yeah. on this. I know it's not a horror film per se. You know, that, that the definition of that can be loose, I suppose. But it's definitely a movie about death that takes place at Christmas time. There's a Christmas tree in basically every scene. <laughs> um, some of them are really tattered, some of them yeah. are really glorious, but there are Christmas trees everywhere. It's kind of, in a sense, it's it's a it's like a Christmas Carol, right? <laughs> in a way, because it, it's really about um, rebirth. And most of these Christmas movies, it, maybe not the slasher ones, <laughs> or Christmas stories, are about rebirth. Of course, there has to be death before there's rebirth. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of ambiguity around the idea of death and eyes wide shut what it means, who who was killed, why, who did it, and then you never really find out. I think I have to go too much into plot for Eyes Wide Shut. I'm sure most people listening to this have seen Eyes Wide Shut. But if you haven't seen it since it came out, see it again, because it holds up extremely well. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do feel like it grasps something really uh, singular about the experience of being in the city around the holidays. Mm-hmm. Just as, as everyone, or as most people probably know, it was set in New York, but it's not shot in New York. You shot it in Europe, and it has this really kind of um, exaggerated, slightly off-kilter, artificial East Village street Mm -hmm. that Tom Cruise is always walking down when he's, like, kind of cruising, kind of not. (laughs) Who knows knows what Cruise is cruising for? Um, And then those frat boys. Those frat boys call them, they say Merry Christmas Mary, (laughs) (laughs) which is something that frat boys definitely did in 1999. (laughs) Yeah, there, there's just a lot of Christmas atmosphere, so much so that it's not just setting. You know, it's not just, it's not accidental. It's not just set design. Um, Eyes Wide Shut is, is very clearly about reemerging into a new year, a new world, a new life, a new marriage, and trying to reconcile the things that are uh, wrong in your life. And it, and if you want to see the orgy scene as like the ultimate shitty Christmas party, <laughs> that's up to you. That's how I've always seen it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's also it's like Tom Cruise's best performance as far as I'm concerned. There's a scene where he finds something sort of alarming in the New York Post, and he's in this amazing diner where the windows are all frosted over with. Uh, basically, uh, basically steamed over because it's so frosty outside, and I, I think you can only accomplish those things with incredibly artificial sets. And I'm really glad, even though it was criticized for this by people who don't really 
know much about movies, uh, <laughs> criticized for being artificial and fake New York. The fact that it's fake New York makes it all the more interesting and beautiful and strange. And um, I actually watch Eyes Wide Shut every year around Christmas time because I actually I find it really cathartic. I find it um, everything about the holiday that kind of is unsaid, maybe. And that's yeah. what's great about Eyes Wide Shut. Nothing's ever really stated. And it ends in a toy store. Yes. Uh, when they're uh, right before Christmas, which is very interesting. And with a couple talking about fucking. Right. Well, yeah. One of the great best last lines of a movie ever. <laughs> Just how ludicrous it is, but also perfect. Yeah. I chose Blast of Silence mm-hmm. and it came to me kind of, I was sort of like, oh, there's a movie that I saw that had a Christmas tree in it and a killer, a, a hired, a contract killer. And I was able to recall that that film but it's made by Alan Barron, like written, directed, and starring Alan Barron in uh, 1961. It's uh, shot in New York. It takes place during the holidays. And one of the things that you were talking about, Michael, is you know what makes these Christmas movies? I think the a Christmas party or some kind of celebration going on. So and it's always nice to have a party scene in a in a film. But this movie is definitely about loneliness in the city a kind of I think having to do a job a work over the holidays or that struck me about it but it's a um, a contract killer who literally gets born into New York City he's it starts out in the darkness and Lionel Stander Bronx gravelly voice actor is talking about you know you hear him being born the the baby being slapped and then he in the little mother don't you know cry and the father's all right and then the train just emerges into New York City and and it's like the way you enter New York and um, Frankie Bono the main character has come into the to the city to do this job where he has to kind of learn to hate the person that he's going to to kill and and to wait out the uh, the uh, strike over the course of Christmas. Turns out he's an orphan. He, um, in his wanderings about the city, which is actually very beautiful, black and white cinematography, you see him on the Staten Island Ferry, walking around Rockefeller Plaza, all these other kind of sites in New York that are all dressed up for Christmas. But he kind of goes through them alone, preparing. He runs into an orphanage friend who introduces him to his sister and he gets involved in going to a, a little party and this kind of his uh, attraction, even though he hates parties, his attraction to this woman who's kind to him, I think convinces him that this might be his last hit, you know, so it ends up being the, the last hit kind of uh, scenario. But the movie is just extremely striking and very lonely. When I was watching it uh, last night, I, I also felt really kind of down but then looking at it a little bit again this morning, it's, it's something exciting about how how independent it is and and self-directed and reading some of the um, uh, contemporaneous uh, descriptions of the film or the reviews by Eugene Archer, no, no relation, <laughs> that it also has a very 1960s kind of rhetoric in describing the film. That's that's really interesting that I would recommend uh, reading. But yeah, it's yeah, a, very, great. It's 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 few films feel as lonely as Blast of Silence. Yeah. It's such a great title too, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's what, that, that I'm glad you reminded me of that opening when he's kind of blasted into the reality of the city and life and coming out of this like birth canal that's also the train tunnel. Mm-hmm. And yeah, these images of him walking around in that trench coat and hat 
silently, quietly through a city decorated with Christmas lights is pretty memorable. <laughs> and he starts out, I think he starts out in Harlem. After he goes, he has to uh, organize the hit on the Staten Island Ferry, but then at some point he's in Harlem and he's sort of talking, you see people walking around on the street and it's like, they, you know, they hate you and you hate them. And, and, and you know, and it's just uh, this kind of monologue that's going on, but in Lionel Standard's gruff voice that, that kind of drives you all the way to the end of the, of the film. One of the films that I was going to talk about briefly is Maniac Cop 2, which <laughs> is a great uh, New York film and shows kind of a different vision of New York during Christmas time or just during the holidays. There's only minimal references to Christmas in the film, but they're just part of the set, really. You know, uh, a Christmas tree here and there or decorations. And, you know, Christmas is what you make of it. It can be, you know, an all-encompassing experience or it could just be decorations in the background. <laughs> and I think that's how Christmas is portrayed in Mania Cup too. There's like a gag in the film where where uh, a woman is trying to face off the maniac cop and she grabs at a hardware store. She grabs a chainsaw off of a cardboard display of like a Bob Vila type looking guy <laughs> with a Santa hat on. But it's just a fantastic New York film. It really uses the city to its advantage and kind of shapes the film around it. And the previous film, the first Maniac Cop, took place. They used the uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade. So they're really using sort of the holidays in New York as a kind of jump-off point for the, the film. Speaking of holidays being used as a jump off, this is a total cheat, but I feel like uh, I cannot discuss this subject of spooky Christmas without mentioning The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is really just like, what are the two best holidays? Let's put them together in one movie. I watched this movie so many times as a child because you get like a little taste of Christmas. You get, well, not a little, you get a lot of taste of Christmas because it's like, uh, it's not actually directed by Tim Burton, which I think a lot of people get confused. It's just written, like it's based on a story idea by him, sort of written by him. Got Danny Elfman singing. Uh, <laughs> Beautifully. Beautiful. Yeah, come on, Oingo Boingo is like, a, his singing in that band is great. And his singing in this movie is like so expressive and so wonderful. And like with Clay, they could make this little puppet thing express so much of emotion. It's kind of incredible. And how irritating is it when it starts being Chris Sarandon speaking oh, every time it. Danny Elfman stops singing? It's always it. disconcerting. I know. I don't like it. I mean, they sort of sound similar. They sort of. I mean, again, it was like I was a kid, so I was just like, eh, whatever. But because you can do that to children. You just lie to them. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know any better. But the But it's definitely just the little elements of horror that are there. Like that are just a little too scary where it's like, oh, the the clown with the tearaway face, the two-faced <laughs> mayor who says he's dishonest, so his face spins around. And then Mr. Oogie Boogie and obviously the creepiest scene when uh, he gets what's coming to him and all the bugs that are inside him. And, ugh, so gross. But, but also the big great. question about the movie is, do you watch it at Halloween or do you watch it at Christmas? I watch it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> or is it a Thanksgiving movie? It's yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like, it's like a good like representation of what American stores have decided to do. It's just like, no Thanksgiving, forget it. It's fine. Let's just do these two. The one with candy and then the one with the presents. But well, Tim, Tim, Tim Burton has a career-long obsession with spooky Christmas, it of has course. to be said, right? Edward Scissorhands is, yes. Chris, is a Christmas film. Batman Returns is a Christmas film. Yes. A very good Christmas film, actually. I think there's some Christmas in Edward. I know there's some Halloween. I'm not 
Sure. It might be minimal. But for me, Ed Wood's like the, the point where it, I love Ed Wood, but that's the point where I, can, I stop watching Tim Burton movies. Of course. No, so that's his Nightmare last Before Christmas movie. falls nicely in that period. There, yes. was, there was a good period there. That's true. I, I, sometimes I wonder, I don't mean to turn this into the Tim Burton podcast. No, it's fine. Uh, but I do sometimes wonder how much of that was just our age at the time that we liked those films and how much of that was actually like he had this period where he had, he had these things to say and these films to make. He made them well and then he wasn't able to make anything well anymore. I don't know. It well, goes back and forth. I don't think I've liked one of his films since and Edward. Yeah, and the excess of CGI afterwards yeah. too is really big turnoff. Helena Bottom Carter shrieking. <laughs> Johnny Depp shrieking. You didn't like uh, Sleepy Hollow? No. Okay. Because I remember watching that and being like, okay. Because that was after like 10 years of like Big Fish and all that nonsense and i was like oh look at this is i'll accept this i guess no no no. that was way before big fish no no i mean i watched it out oh of order. i see i watched it out of order but i mean sleepy I, hollow for me was mars attacks i was kind of irritating me but i was still alone to go mars with mars attacks is sleepy funny. hollow is when it really fell apart for me because i had such a strong connection to the story and i was like oh my god tim burton using these product this production design these production values for this story is going to be great and then it was just one of his little hammer horror hand jobs <laughs> <laughs> As Sorry, a, we're off topic. Here. Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to the perfection that is Edward. <laughs> Edward is so good. It is. There was a time in my life where I was feeling pretty down, and I would every Friday I would watch Edward and make me feel better. <laughs> and I'm not even joking because it it is it was one of the most heartwarming, uplifting movies about guy who made crap <laughs> ever made. But on that note, I think we'll have to wrap it up. But before we do, it would be great if we each went around and named a film we had seen recently that we liked. I can go first. Black Sun or Sol Negro, which is by Laura Huertas Milan. And it's about 40 minutes long. And it's this woman who's making a documentary about her opera singer aunt, who is, it's an Argentine film, and she's actually in rehab. And they don't ever say like, oh, is this for drugs or alcohol or for what? But it's just a portrait of her aunt and then also her mother's relationship to the aunt and just sort of talking through it's just like a very striking portrait of like mental illness and then the role of like performance and family and just these these hereditary you know like inheriting these things and what do you do with them and trying to make sense of them and it's really beautiful and it's going to be playing at neighboring scenes which is this uh Latin American film series that's at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. So if you can, if you're in New York, you should check it out. I have a book movie package deal that I thought I'd recommend. Because I recently read Sweet for Barbara Loden by Natalie Leger, and it was just like a really, really great little book that started off as an, sort of an encyclopedia entry that she was assigned to write on the film, but then she got so much deeper into the project and turned it into this very unique book that's partly personal, partly academic, and just very wonderfully written. And so, of course, if you read the book, you've got to watch the movie too. Mm-hmm which is, the film is called Wanda. And it's directed by and stars Barbara Loden, who was an actress and was also married to Elia Kazan, although that doesn't matter. But (laughs) (laughs) she plays a a poor woman in Pennsylvania who just can't catch a break and sort of hooks up with this robber and... They they go on kind of a crime spree, but it's 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 a great film too. I just got that book. I haven't read it yet, but then I was just watching Barbara Loden in Glass Menagerie mm. that they just uh, uh, found and and restored, and it was really interesting to see her in that role because I only know her from Wanda, but it's very I'm looking forward to reading that book. 
Wanda is one of the great films. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cheat. Well, I don't know if it's a cheat, but I'm going to stick with the topic, I guess. Sure. And just talk about one of the films that didn't really fit in, but it's worth mentioning. And it's a classic and everybody's seen it, but I did watch it again. So Fanny and Alexander, Ingmar yes. Bergman's great, great film. I prefer the miniseries version. So maybe that is a version that listeners haven't seen. If you can, it's on Criterion. It's like the full five-hour TV miniseries. Yeah. It's unbelievably great and Trust me, you know the three-hour version's already great. This is even better. Mm-hmm. Um, just more detail, more intricate, exquisite stuff. More um, cool Jewish mysticism. More of that <laughs> in the in the scary season. It's kind of, kind of a scary Christmas movie. Yeah. But it does have, you know, the first hour of the film is this Christmas party. Mostly a joyous occasion until yes. after when everyone goes to their respective bedrooms and they're all sad. But one of my favorite scenes is kind of like a, a great example of telling ghost stories at Christmas, which is when Alexander terrifies his sister and all the cousins and all the friends in the bedroom by putting on a magic lantern show, which was, of course, what Ingmar Bergman himself always said he loved to do as a child and what inspired him to make to make movies. So yeah, there's an amazing ghost story aspect to Fanny and Alexander and one of the great Christmas films. Also a great terrible stepdad movie. Which we might do a podcast. (laughs) We could just talk about Night of the Hunter and Penny and Alexander, the five-hour version only. Night of the Hunter also has Christmas scenes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'll just cheat slightly and mention Home for the Holidays, 1972. Um, Yeah. So TV movie with Sally Field and a whole bunch of different generation actresses that I would highly recommend to, to try to grab on YouTube or wherever you can get a chance to see it why they would make this ABC movie of the week for the holidays that is so grim and kind of also slasherish is really a nice way to, to kind of end your Christmas night. And that's how I first uh, got into it. But the movie that I've seen most recently was uh, Nocturnal Animals, uh, Tom Ford's film. And I don't know what I was expecting, and I certainly don't know what the people around me were expecting, but the woman next to me was suffering. I don't think she was expecting to see a relatively violent film and I was almost kind of like why didn't he just make a movie that was a kind of thriller but of course it's it's sort of put in this in the relationship of a a reading a story and how that gets imagined but I think there the woman least next to me was I think expecting to be at you know Tom Ford film and Amy Adams and and she was just in a ball of horror (laughs) and and I I felt kind of sorry for her but so we're surrounded by horror yeah (laughs) so (laughs) anyway my long way around that (laughs) it's perfect it's perfect well thank you all for coming this was wonderful thank you thank you You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Or check out our app, available on Android and iOS at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. Happy Holidays. <laughs>